0: talked about marjorie taylor Greene and how
1: she when i see mtg it reminds me of meetings and a few you said when you say uh, when you see mtg it reminds you of magic the gathering it makes me very happy that this is a safe enough place where you can admit that to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, still coming down from his birthday high, Maddox.
0: Oh, you don't think I crashed very quickly after that? Did you crash? I don't know. Did a go
1: weekend or a good birthday weekend?
0: That was a great weekend. Thank you so much for a delightful little birthday draft, a beautiful birthday brunch. It was a great time.
1: It was the least we could do for all of the beautiful brunches you've done for us. And uh, you know, it's always a good excuse to play magic.
0: And we even got to play my cube that everyone hates again. And Do people still hate it? I think people are coming around on it. You know, people started. Hmm, it's weird to say people started winning more because that doesn't make it's sense. That's not how that uh, works. Hmm. Certain people started winning more, and they're having Certain a better grumpy time. people
1: that <laughs> may have been grumpy before. Yeah, my win rate's only gone down, but that's okay. I'm still happy. I still got the 2 1 mm-hmm. with the. Uh, what was my deck? I'm, all of a sudden, I'm totally blanking. Oh, it was a green, white good stuff deck it was a green white i got a sun titan deck basically oh
0: yes pa- passing sun titan fell bad
1: yeah it was really good i guess you did not want to play what's the conspiracy you had him of the wilds
0: well, mm, what do you mean what's the conspiracy you had is it him of the wilds i believe it's called him of the wild so yeah there are this is the cube that has some weird rare cards that just show up occasionally and i drafted this conspiracy that lets uh you choose either one two or three and all your creatures of that oh it has to be mana. one two or three right
1: yeah, i was yeah. about to suggest maybe you just take Sun Titan and do Him saying. of the Wild 6 and so that's the six? only card. Yeah. No, no, no. Is it worth it? No, I guess it's not even an option. Oh, well.
0: So that was my pack one pick one. My draft that's didn't That's an interesting go detail great. of that
1: card because I feel like they probably did that because in playtesting less experienced players were only doing it on higher numbers and then oh, train wrecking their draft by playing just too many high curve cards. like, oh, this cards. is great. Now I can take every six drop I want. Yeah. When in actual body, it's like, no, you just should name a cheaper man value mm-hmm. card. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That could be it. Anyway, you said your deck was a train wreck. Well, no, a no. Wreck? Did
0: I say train wreck? It was, it was just not great. Like I think, I think I learned a lot about how to draft with that card.
1: I didn't see your deck at all. Other I, than... I just had
0: like every two drop of every color, and just my. So it was cool that I could have like opening you were, like, hands like, five with, color aggro, basically. Yeah, a bunch of very powerful two drops. But then I just like my curve wasn't great. I, my deck sort of lacked some cohesion, and I didn't have enough interaction. But it was still a fun draft.
1: Yeah, I think the cube is fun. I'm still on the fence about how I feel about just losing to bombs. I know it's part of the mm-hmm. environment, and that's kind of supposed to be or winning with bombs frankly like some of the games with almost sun titan i was just like sorry <laughs> <laughs> sun titan sorry you lose <laughs> sun titan sorry and it's like the environment has a fair bit of removal but a lot of it is not gonna remove six sixes yeah I think it is that scaled that's removal the
0: most clear like place that needs adjustment here i think the core concept is bearing out to be fairly successful but definitely tuning like what is the right amount of removal where it feels like your bombs still matter but you also feel like your opponents don't just take over the game. And and also, you know, that power level disparity. Sun Titan is probably pushing the the limit a little bit. Even for rares.
1: You had Him of the Wilds. Well, you want to (laughs) have that sometimes. (laughs) Him of the Wilds is a sometimes treat. Exactly. You opened that pack one, I assume, because you passed me Mother of Runes and you wouldn't pass Mother of Runes. That pack had a bunch of good stuff in it, I think. Anyway, it's a fun cube. I, I think one of my realizations about it is that I actually think even if you ignored the rare module, that the base cube is more powerful than the regular cube, which is not how it was introduced and not what I thought at first, but I think that kind of change in assumption changes how I value cards a lot, to be like, actually, this is a pretty powerful environment where you can just get dead real quick. The scary aggro deck that got the 3-0 was a red-green aggro deck that had a lot of like little synergies, and uh, I'm not even sure. There was a couple rares that were in the deck, but they were definitely not core to the strategy. It was like, yeah, it's nice to fiery confidence you to death but wasn't essential to win the game
0: yeah his deck was really brutal that was definitely an intentional design choice to make sure that both some of the more synergistic decks and definitely some of the more aggressive decks could be powerful you know and and aside from the rares just just still be meaningful in that environment just to make sure you're not saying like well i'm just drafting you know five color good stuff every time
1: yeah aggro i think feels much closer to like the bun magic cube and power level than it does to regular cube somewhere in that continuum but further of it than i expected when i first drafted the cube so it's good to have expectations reset it's also fun to see players be like red green aggro i guess and it's like yeah that's a thing you can do that this
0: was also a weird draft i think three players ended up drafting red green myself included with you know that yeah yeah. and him in
1: the wild so you were kind of your 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 picks were My my
0: mana base was true yes my mana base was green red but i did have some some chaos
1: I was sitting to your left, and I felt vindicated at the end when you had him in the wilds because I was like, "Well, that explains my give yeah, well, a signals." recent captain, come back! But how many times have I said that at the end of the draft and be like, "Oh, the signals were bad," and then someone's just drafting a normal deck? You know, I have to like right, you know right. stay focused and not just have confirmation bias.
0: It was also see, fun to see Jay previously draft mono green with lingering souls and now draft Esper lingering souls and just crush people with it.
1: Lingering souls is a messed up card, but I think that's how did get, Jay do? Uh, he he won.
0: Oh wait, no, you're right. He only won. I beat Jay. Hmm. I
1: beat Jay handily.
0: Wow. Okay. It wasn't even
1: close. It wasn't even close to being close. I beat Jay on a model to five. Wow. Yeah. Spicy. Yeah. Sorry, Jay, for listening. Bad beats. Anyway, I think you make a point to explore novel keep design space and not just be like, here's the mono white aggro deck that you see in the MTGO vintage cube. You're like, yeah red green echo that's the thing and people were like hey this deck's like really good And it's like yeah did you know that other cards could be good <laughs> turns out other, other cards can also be good.
0: be good yeah that's another thing that's fun about it is like uh one of the cards that was really good in james's deck was i think it's called kazandu tusk color and it's like one, this like that's weird a level up level up one. card that you would just you would never if you if you saw this in like your cube you would probably just not read it you would just <laughs> overlook it because it's this like weird card so it's fun to make a place where it's like oh yeah this is actually super powerful here
1: this week on the show, we are back to our regular, regularly scheduled programming. We had three weeks worth of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty set reviews. We had our special episode last week with guests Andy and Mike from the Guardian Project podcast. Check that out if you haven't. But now, Anthony, things are settled down. and We are back to just talking about Cube. And for discussion this week, I actually brought a Reddit post that I saw on the MTG Cube subreddit a couple weeks ago. And I actually started writing a reply to this post. And then I got like, I don't know a couple hundred words in and I was like, this is too long for a Reddit post and also I already know that I'm only like a fraction into what I actually want to say and so I think we should do an episode about it. And that's what we're here to do and maybe we'll talk about some other stuff and uh, it's going to happen this episode. We are going to do, we're going to close out with our kitchen items tier list. So long awaited. People have been waiting a month for this because we like talked about it, we teased it, then we went right into Kamagawa spoiler season. So that's coming in this episode. Stay tuned for that. Don't get your hopes up. I worked hard on mine. I'm not sure about yours. Okay, fine. He made a weird look. This is, a, this is an audio medium. People are not going to hear your weird look on the podcast.
0: I'll give you, I'll give you a preview. It's a level one, knives. Level two, more knives.
1: Level three, stretch goals. You want some more knives? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Into our main topic. The title of this post is a discussion on the power of signaling themes with unique cards. When is it worth it? And This is by user Jay Selzo. I assume that's how that's meant to be pronounced on the mtg cube subreddit we will of course link it in the show notes i'm just going to read this word for word i think it's not too terribly long and i think it's important to have the full context and then anthony i'm curious to know what you think about this Jay Selzo says hey cube crew yesterday i did a grid draft of my cube with a friend to test some new cards from neon dynasty one of which was temeshi reality architect i didn't have high hopes for the card given the three mana two three body and expensive activation cost in my relatively efficient environment But since I had fun with it at pre-release, I decided to give it a try regardless. Then, my friend drafted this awesome deck. I was truly blown away because I don't really have any cards that support an artifact deck outside of Urza Saga, which has thus far functioned as a micro synergy package rather than a whole deck's game plan. When I asked my friend about his thought process for going down this route, he said he picked Tameshi in the first grid and wanted to build around it. He really went all out using looters to loop cheap artifacts that go into the graveyard for value and ended up recurring Urza's Saga and Amiria's call to close out games. Reflecting on this, I feel conflicted. I don't think Tameshi is a card that makes the cut in my environment on power level, but I'm simultaneously so pleased that it compelled my friend to care about recursion and artifacts, a mindset that ultimately made his Urza's Saga, Master of Death, Lingering Souls, and Jace's Friend's Prodigy, among others, better than I typically see them. In a way, Temeshi is what made this gestalt happen. As such, I feel a tension between the signaling value the card offers and its viability as a player in my environment. So here are my questions for you wonderful cubers. Where do you all land on the trade-off between the psychological driver side of a card and its raw power level? What are your thought processes when considering this issue? Are there any cards you have experienced a similar tension with? If so, how do you resolve it? How sick is this deck? We'll link the post in the show notes, as I said, so you can go check out the deck for yourself and decide how sick you think it is. But, Anthony, what do you think of this post? What do you think of this question?
0: I think the deck is pretty sick, so uh, I think that about sums it up.
1: Third question answered. Deck, pretty sick.
0: I think this is a really interesting question. I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about it. I feel like we can go very deep into it, but I do think the sort of surface level uh, sort of answer to it is is kind of obvious to me that the question seems to be just my friend drafted this awesome deck around a card that I didn't think was very good. They thought it was great. They had a great time drafting it. They had a great time playing it. The designer of the cube thought it was awesome to see that. So the question is the trade-off. Should I have this experience or should I try and include more powerful cards? To me, that's kind of a no-brainer. Like, absolutely. You should focus on that great experience that was fun for you.
1: I agree. I think the surface level of this question is that if... Timeshi resulted in a very pleasurable play session. I don't like those words. I'm going to take that one more time. If Tameshi resulted in a lot of joy for both players and made a deck that you were excited to see and a deck your friend was excited to play, then I don't see why you would be criticizing it on power level and deciding to to cut it. Now, it's not entirely clear from this post whether or not Tameshi was actually any good in the deck. They say the deck was good and brought all these kind of synergies together. And from talk about recurring things like Amiria's Call with Temeshi to close out games, which is incredibly sick. We should read Temeshi, I guess, probably, at least, just to give people a little context on that. Temeshi Reality Architect is a legendary creature, Moonfolk Wizard. It is two and a blue for a 2-3. Whenever one or more non-creature permanents are returned to hand, draw a card. This ability triggers only once each turn, and it has an activation for X and a white and returning a land you control to its owner's hand, you can return target artifact or enchantment card with converted mana cost X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Activate this ability only as a sorcery. A lot of text, but it is effectively a 3-mana 2-3 value engine. And the value is you can bounce your own land to draw a card and also cast an artifact from your graveyard, which is a lot of value, certainly. Like If that land in play offers not a ton of value to you, then it's very cool to be able to get that late game... I I keep saying the word value. It's very cool to get that late game value again. And I love the play pattern of playing out Amiri's Call as a land early, because you need a land, and then later on, bouncing it back to your hand, paying a bunch of mana, making 2-4-4 angels. That's very cool. I'm very excited to see that. So I think what we don't know is, was Tameshi actually good in this deck? Because if Tameshi was not actually good, but the deck was good, and certainly... I don't think it's a stretch to say that this deck, which contains Stoneforge Mystic, Umazawa's Jite, Baleful Strix, Master of Death, Tossiger, Temeshi, is not the most powerful card in this deck. We even have the Skull to go with the Stoneforge Mystic, lots of removal spells, a few cantrips. It's a powerful deck with powerful cards, I don't think Temeshi is the peak of that power level. I think the question is, is this draft kind of a fluke because this person saw Timeshi and was just in the mood to try to make that work no matter what? And in the future, players are going to not end up with Tameshi Invade because it's not powerful enough. Or is Timeshi actually just good enough and this person is still kind of shocked that that's the case?
0: I mean, I think that what's buried in what you're saying is... Does just having some signaling cards that push players to think about the game, think about cards, think about decks in a different way, contribute something meaningful to the environment, which I think if that is what happened, you're saying, hey, this card isn't really necessary, let's say, in this deck, but it forced a player to think about these interactions in a different way. That seems really powerful from a game design perspective.
1: The writer didn't say for sure, but it seems like Temeshi was actually powerful because again, recurring... Ameria's call to win the game. That's the thing you do with Temeshi. There's no other card in this deck that I can see that could even do that. So they're describing winning lines that Temeshi provided, and it's a very unique effect, so they wouldn't be getting those winning lines from anywhere else, even though they could have won with a different a different line completely. I agree the baseline is do less. Pop down. Stop overthinking it. You had a good draft where a cool deck came together, a deck that you think is really sweet, and it was largely because of this card. Keep the card in there. see what happens. There's another level to this, I think, which is If this card some percentage of the time is picked early and results in a really cool deck and the other percentage of the time goes kind of late, the blue player wasn't doing an artifact or recursion thing, doesn't have lands to buy back, didn't make all of their picks with this kind of synergy in mind and that card ends up being kind of unplayable and riding the sideboard. How big is that cost? I think is, is a core question here. And to me, it is definitely a cost. I think I very consciously include cards in my cube that I think are a lot better if you pick them early and if you get them late. Even if you're in that color, you might not play them because they just don't work because your deck didn't come together in the way that they prescribed. But I'm okay with that. There's intentionally some chunk of my cube that I don't expect to be just generic good stuff that goes in every single deck. And to be relevant only the third of the time it's open in the first pack or something and somebody decides to latch on and go for it. Do you think about cards this way in your own cube?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's this balance between, do you want cards to be good in every deck? If we go too far to that extreme, then it kind of, you just take whatever, and it, it takes away some of the interesting texture from your games. It's Let's, let's just imagine this theoretical super extreme, okay?
1: <laughs> okay, theoretical super extreme, all the cards are...
0: Equally playable in any deck. And they're all deck.
1: creatures... I think even your I mean, don't worry matters.
0: About, don't just—it says magic card, and it—it it gives you. It just Two adds, winning points. It just adds win percentage to your deck. That's all it does. Okay. And and which particular win percentages you put into your deck uh, doesn't matter. That extreme. Isn't possible, but it wouldn't be great if we could get there. The fact that mm-hmm. there is this interesting texture of you're going to have div- diverse, different kinds of decks. And that is a goal of mine. And I think of most cube designers that they want to see as many unique, different kinds of decks as possible out of their cube. So some of those cards that even if you're losing some potential diversity and the fact that they don't make it a lot of the time because they you just don't have the the support for them it also adds something unique that you wouldn't get if you don't have those more extreme cards that take some level of build around.
1: Yeah, and I guess what I would say too is that you know your players are going to draft a deck from their seat. They're going to get 45 picks. We're going to imagine this is a 3x15 draft, though of course you could do different formats. But they're going to get 45 picks. They're going to build a 40-card deck, which is going to have somewhere between 23 and 25 non-land cards in it. That leaves 20 other cards that you've picked that are either your mana base or other cards. And... Sure, towards the end of the pack, there are going to be some cards you don't actually get to pick that are just handed to you. So those are kind of write-offs. But there's room in that draft unless you want to go so, so deep on fixing lands that that your players are basically never playing basic lands in their pools because they have so many fixing lands. Which is definitely a direction you can go. Like, make all the cards generically playable so that there isn't any sideboard kind of card. There isn't any build-around kind of card. Everybody has ample fixing or has at least the opportunity to draft ample fixing and then see what kind of decks they put together. There's nothing invalid about that. But most people aren't doing that. And if you're not, this is exactly the kind of thing to use that space on. I would say even if Tameshi ends up riding sideboards 75% of the time, if 25% of the time you get a really cool, unique deck that you're really happy with, I think that's worth it. So I think there is one
0: other cost, though. You're, you're totally right that just the, the space in... The, the cube itself is a cost and a cost that you should balance, and you're you're making that cost with literally every card you choose to include in the cube, right? Absolutely. The other cost is the risk of a quote-unquote trap, where if this is a really narrow card that seems to broadcast a very specific type of archetype or synergy or kind of deck that just really isn't there... Letting your players think, oh, I have an opportunity to draft a 3-0 deck with this, which I think is a reasonable way that most people approach it. If you're trying to seed in archetypes or themes, the ideal is that any one of those themes has the potential to be a 3-0 deck, right? So you could get into a situation where players draft this card, then they say, oh, well, I never saw any, you know, enchantments that this made sense with. And so uh, I built this deck, but it just didn't really function. Right. Which I think it's easy to overstate that risk. I, I haven't actually seen it come up that often, but it is another theoretical risk.
1: Yeah, it doesn't come up that often. It has come up in the Irregular Cube because true you specifically include... That was
0: that was a weird... I mean, that was that's another thing that's really valuable about testing these kinds of extreme cases is we do get to see those extreme cases pan out.
1: Yeah, and that is a really extreme case because the Irregular Cube is, again, more or less like a buffed up retail limited environment. People are attacking each other with creatures. There's like some synergy, but the power level is lower than the, the max. But you have like some storm cards seeded throughout with the idea that there would be like maybe a Fair Storm deck, right? It would basically be a payoff for. The,
0: the dream of Fair Storm that me and dozens of other people Dude, have.
1: <laughs> I have that dream as well because I love spell looking decks. You know, I love taking lots of game actions, and mm-hmm. a mechanic that inherently rewards lots of game actions is very appealing to me. But players generally see a card like Empty the Warrens and are like, okay. I know what this card does. It is supposed to do exactly this thing, which is go in a broken storm deck and be a win condition. Or if you see a Tendrils of Agony or a Brain Freeze or whatever, they're like, they have a very narrow conception of what that can be. And they are not thinking, hey, you know what's a pretty good rate? Four mana for four goblins, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> which is a very that's good, a rate. good rate. That's a very good rate. If you you know cast a Empty the War in Storm Count 2, that's a pretty good rate. And in this environment, it'd be pretty defensible. If you get a Storm Count 3, that's a very, very good card in this particular environment. Players are not analyzing it on that axis, though. And so we did have a player that saw a bunch of Storm cards because, again, you have this kind of vague Storm support and then just went all in, like 100% committed to Storm. and Which then Which was cool to see. Very cool to see. Not cool to play, apparently, because it did not work because uh, it, it was, I guess by this definition, somewhat of a trap because you don't have Lion's Eye Diamond or, you know, whatever the important enablers are that actually make that deck pop. You just kind of had some of the set dressing that kind of made it feel like maybe it was there.
0: That's a weird case where I feel like I feel like you can have traps that are just like literal, this card does not work. You know, it says all your elves get plus and plus one, and you have no other elves in the cube, and that's like an extreme case. This is a case where I feel like it was a trap in sort of the combination of the environment, but also the player expectations. Which, to be fair, what is important is the, game, is the play yeah. experience. So, yeah. either case kind of boils down to the same thing, is the, the player experience. But I think there is a distinction there that is... Interesting to think about in terms of the way you're presenting and explaining a cube.
1: So, yeah, I agree that I think overall the idea of a trap is a bit overstated because it's a draft. And if you have one trap card, great, okay, one trap. Hopefully, the player savvily realizes halfway through pack two actually seems like this is not coming together and hasn't like derailed their whole draft trying to build around one pick, which is not advisable ever, frankly. So, I do think overall it is a bit overstated, though it can happen. I think it actually is more likely to happen when you have multiple cards that seem to support a theme. But that theme doesn't actually work for some reason. It's missing a, a key component rather than just having one card that is perhaps playing with expectations.
0: An example that I always think is funny is the literal first draft ever of my regular cube. So my main cube that I've had for the longest. A player first picked Patient Rebuilding, which was probably a mistake to include in that environment. And it got cut pretty quickly. And they were like, at the end of the draft, like so confused they were like I-, I took this card and then i didn't see a mill archetype anywhere like what happened why did my draft go so wrong and then the sort of positive spin to that was then patient rebuilding is just a very powerful card and they just won with it handily so yeah i, I think that it turned out okay but it definitely <laughs> led to a weird experience where they felt a little bit unmoored during
1: the draft yeah and i think that's okay I think it's okay too. Like I, part of me thinks that that's part of the fun of drafting is not really having a solid idea of what's going on and like trying to figure it out in real time. We've drafted a lot of cubes many, many times and you start to learn what the environment's about and you start to like have a much better sense of the, of the space. But, I like my first draft of a limited environment as much as I like my 10th, you know, and that's the same for a cube. I think it's just a different kind of experience to like, not really know what's going on and be trying to figure it out on the fly.
0: Right. Which I mean, sounds like that is the the experience that the asker of this question had, which is that their friend who was drafting the cube saw this card, thought it was cool and decided just to go for it. And it sounds like they had yeah. reasonable expectations that yeah, it might not work, but they wanted to give it a try because it was a cool card. And that, turned out well, which is great.
1: I don't think we can really assess whether Tameshi is a trap from this post alone, but I have to say the fact that this person was able to make this work in just a grid draft, which a grid draft, you do see fewer cards in general. Your decks tend to be less synergistic than in a normal eight-person draft around a table. The fact they were able to put this together in a grid draft suggests to me that if you get it early, I don't think it's going to be a trap, right? There's so many layers to which you think could be a trap, right? There's the layer of does this card set some expectation that is then not resolved, that is not followed through on? An example of that is like a cube that includes Splinter Twin, but no Pestermatter Deceiver Arc. People expect that, even right. if you're trying to make a fair Splinter Twin a thing. So that's one way a card can be a trap. Another way can be like, oh, the deck is there, it's supported. But actually, I, as the cube designer, did a bad job balancing my archetypes. And so like you can draft all these things that this deck supposedly wants to do. But then you're just going to get stomped repeatedly because actually these other decks that are doing these other things are much more powerful. And so that's another layer which can be a trap. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure we can say that it is from this. Set. I'm not sure the owner of this cube could say either. I think that would deserve more playtesting. But I personally wouldn't recommend or consider cutting Dimethyl here just because this person maybe thinks this won't happen that often, you know?
0: Yeah. Another thing that I think is worth highlighting is just that I think the surprise is a really valuable aspect here. The fact that they were yeah. willing to try a card that they just enjoyed the play patterns of. And even though they didn't think it made sense, gave it a try. That just makes me think, oh yeah, we should all be more willing just to try out more cards because we might be surprised by them. And the fact that they can just, you know, a single individual card can create this entire novel, new perspective on a deck and a draft is
1: pretty exciting. That's the other thing I wanted to say is I know I have been surprised by cards. I put in my own environment before where I for the longest time thought something wouldn't work and then I put it in and it did, or I for the longest time thought something was too good and then I put it in and it actually wasn't too good or vice versa. I think it was good enough. And it turns out that it was good enough. I think that when you spend a lot of time thinking about cube and posting it on the cube subreddit or whatever, you can very easily talk yourself into a corner where like you think you've tried all the options. And I really don't think people have, there's two sides of this, right? There's one side, which is the kind of optimistic side, which you're portraying, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I agree. Like, This maybe want to try this card. Like I have, I think almost every other card in this deck list, save for like a few, are in my cube. And so, like you could build almost this exact same deck in my cube if you wanted to. I've got support in that sense for Temeshi, and I'm I like thought about trying it based on this pose in that deck list. Honestly, the other side of it though is that, which is an important lesson also I think to internalize, is that your players are going to play whatever cards are in your cube, and the win percentage across the cube is not going to change. Right? We've talked about that before. Like. You're going to play one grid draft, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose, right? And they're going to play whatever cards are in your cube. And so I also think there's a kind of opposite force, which is this bias towards cards that are already in the cube, which is like, these cards are good because people win with them all the time. And these are the kind of decks I want to support. And so I need to like not cut them. Is this making any sense? I just feel like there's a bias that... You're like, oh, look, a winning deck with this card. But, but like that, that's always going to happen. Like No matter what cards you put in the cube, people are always going to win with them. They're always going to lose with them. It just, that's a...
0: So you're saying there's a bias between the cards that are in the decks that are winning are the, quote unquote, the best cards for the environment, which maybe isn't true because if you cut those cards, some other cards would now be the winning cards. That's maybe a better way to put it.
1: Yeah, like there's always going to be winning cards. And if you put cards in the cube, like maybe another way to put it is that like, I think a lot of cards are if you imagine them in this win percentage supercomputer matrix are completely interchangeable, right? And this, I feel a lot about like four mana planeswalkers and like three mana mid range threats where it's like, do you play Adeline? Do you play Brimaz? Do you play flicker wisp? It's like, how much would swapping one of those out actually really change the win percentage of the environment? I would argue a lot of times, well, first of all, it's unknowable. Of the environment, none. Of, of the environment, of course not, because it's just even 50%. But change the win percentage of the deck playing that card. Obviously, it's unknowable, which I actually love. Let's keep that unknowable, people. <laughs> don't nobody be out there solving this problem forever. But also, I would argue that it's like negligible. And so, the, the beauty is you don't have to choose what you think is like the best card for your environment in terms of the most powerful, you get to choose the card you most want to play with. And so is Temeshi good enough? Who knows? If you put some other blue three drop in there, you might've won the same game with that other blue three drop, right? It just happened to be Temeshi this time. Cause that was the one you happened to include. If it had been true name, nemesis or quick, no blue three drop uh, champion Click. of wits champion of wits. If it had been any of these other cards, you might've still won the exact same games for similar reasons, Right. So the choice you get to make as a cube designer is just how do you want these games to be won? And in this case, these games were won by drafting a cool synergistic deck that was recurring artifacts, recurring its own lands, and like won in this novel way. If that way of losing made you be like, this was fun and good and I liked it, then do more of that. Because I don't think... There's this concern, as this as, as person seems to be suggesting here, which is like they don't want to bring their environment down a peg by playing this card that maybe isn't at the peak of power level. And it's like, people will win with it. Because look, someone already won with it. They'll win with the cards in the cube. That's just how playing magic works. Right.
0: There's sort of actually two facets or two two different ways that you can look at and talk about power level in a cube. I think the one that's being talked about here makes a lot of sense and is, is relevant, which is if you have cards that are just drastically below the average power level, the the cards just might not get played. So it's just sort of like wasted space. So I think it is very important to be aware of and talk about the power level of cards because figuring out what cards are going to get played and what cards aren't so you can maximize the sort of space and get the most value out of every card you're putting in the cube makes a lot of sense. The other way that you can talk about power level is this sort of more nebulous thing to say, well, more powerful cards are quote-unquote better game pieces, which that to me, if I was to read this question from that perspective... I, that just isn't a meaningful or compelling argument to me i think that you know you can change the numbers and make uh all the cards relative to each other less powerful and still have a lot of interesting dynamic gameplay so if you're talking about it from that perspective i would say that this is an easy yeah of course lean towards the cards that are creating the more fun experience
1: yeah and, and just to play the other side of that argument is like let's assume this person has played with these cards a lot and decided that like Cards like Umazawa's Jite and Stoneforge Mystic and Skull and Baleful Strikes, these are the cards I want to play with, right? Those right. are, let's assume there are cards of that power level they've decided are the play patterns that they like, which is how I've come to think of my own Bun Magic Cube. It's like, I want to play Snapcaster Mage, I want to play Lightning Bolt, in order for them not to be head and shoulders above the rest of the cube that kind of necessitates that everything be kind of pushed up a little bit. Right. And so that would be an argument against Tameshi, even if you like the play the play patterns, right? If this was the exact same card, but five mana, it's like, okay, does the same thing. It's the same card, except it's not, because it will never be worth five mana, and so right. no one will ever put it in a deck. And at that point, I do think it's a waste of space, in the sense that it would not be correct to play in almost any deck list ever. Here, I think it's like totally up for debate, and the fact that this deck came together seems to suggest that there's some percentage of the time it will work. I don't know what percentage of the time that is. The author doesn't either, but I think it's definitely worth figuring out based on the excitement this person has around this one singular deck list. The poster also asked if there were cards that we had experienced a similar tension with. And I there are cards in my cube for sure that I think are going to have a strong influence on your draft if you pick them early. And if you get them late, even those colors, you may end up not playing it. So just talking about the Bun Magic Cube, one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is Dreadhorde Arcanist. This is a card that I really love. I did not put it in my cube immediately when War of the Spark came out. I looked at it and I was like, well, don't know how often this is going to be relevant. So like a two mana one three, which is awkward. It wants to attack, but it's not dealing that much damage. Like how is this card going to like play out? And we've talked before about how cube designers are very influenced by Constructed and we are not immune to that. This card ended up being a huge dominant force in Legacy and it's now banned. And that's, what largely convinced me to actually try the card is looking at these legacy decks that were using using as this value engine. It kind of played a similar role to like a Dark Confidant in that it was a cheap creature that was attacking, that was pushing damage through, but was also buying you this intense late game value. And it's the kind of card that in late in the draft, if you're playing like pure mono red aggro, it's entirely possible. You don't have more than like three, four, five, one mana spells. At which point, it's pretty suspect and I'd rather have something else most of the time. If you're playing like a Green, red, mid-range deck, you oftentimes won't want it if you get it late in the draft. Again, you might only have a handful of like cheap burn spells, not that many green instants and sorceries for you to be flashing back with it. But if you get it early, you can either commit really hard on getting a bunch of one mana spells. So there's stuff you can guarantee to flash back, or you can make sure you have some one mana spells, but more focus on making sure you have ways to boost the power of your creatures. In my environment, I have some plus one plus one counters, I have some equipment. I have some Planeswalkers that provide temporary buffs in the form of, like, combat trick-esque loyalty abilities. And in combination with those things, you can end up flashing back really, really big spells, which makes this a very threatening and very imposing 2-drop. So that's a card that I am not surprised if I see it in a 3-0 deck and somebody says it was absolutely disgusting and, like, dominated the whole game. And I'm also not surprised if someone was in red and just doesn't play it. And that's a sort of risk I'm happy to take on for that card. It's such a cool card. Do you have any in your... Cubes that you can think of that ride a similar space for you.
0: I feel like I've had more the opposite experience of just having cards uh, because a lot of the cubes that I've been designing are much lower powered, and it's really easy in those contexts to add a card that you like the play patterns of. It has a lot of exciting text, but then the raw power level just takes over, and it doesn't end up being about you know the thing. Like you're not putting Nesting Dragon in your deck because it has a cool landfall ability. You're it's just like a pewed flyer that just destroys your your opponent. Uh, I, I guess one that was sort of more in the other direction is I initially had Slimefoot, one of my all time favorite cards. In my main cube and it, it definitely fell victim to the similar pattern where it's like it's a cool card the text is relevant but it just didn't quite get there on power level in the initial list and as a success story after sort of cutting a lot of those sort of power outliers that were just a little bit overpowered and sort of tweaking the, the tempo of the the environment a little bit and adding a couple other cards that support it i've actually put Slimefoot back in and it's like a, a solid c plus b minus which is something that i'm really happy about
1: some other examples of cards like this in my own cube I can think of, like Thing in the Ice. It's another card that oftentimes ends up in the sideboard if you're playing a deck that doesn't have a bunch of cheap cantrips especially, so you can draw more cheap spells to cast them. That could be a card where you like bring it in against aggro as a blocker until it eats a removal spell or something. But if you get it early, it can be your whole win condition, right? It can be a deck you basically draft and build around. I feel the same way about Golos, honestly. I think cube players in general are much higher on Golos than I am. I think it is like If you don't have Field of the Dead or maybe Shell Dock Isle, but even not even that. If you don't have a really good land to get with it, I think it goes to like well below average, like well below replacement level for my environment. But if you do get it early, then not only are you encouraged to draft really powerful lands in the form of creature lands and Field of the Dead, but you're also motivated to pick up a couple of those fringe fixing lands just so if the game does drag on and you get in a board stall, you can afford to pay that activation on Golos and actually pay all five calories of mana that's another one that I oftentimes will see a Golos late and be like well I'm a mid-range deck that I would with some ramp that I would usually be happy to have this if I had gotten it early but I didn't so I'm just going to take any other more threatening four or five drop than Golos at this point because it doesn't really do what my deck is trying to do I mean that's where you you're different from a lot of cube players because uh their deck would at that point be trying to cast Golos And you know, sometimes I think that's right. (laughs) I'm not saying I'm always right, but I definitely think of my cube as an environment where I want people to be drafting focused, efficient decks. And so I will always draft a focused, efficient deck, and I will always 2-1, I think, is what ends up happening. And somebody else that's been a little greedier will uh, maybe pull down the 3 or maybe not.
0: That's a big episode uh, topic right there, is how to 2-1 your draft.
1: Oh, I mean, we're the experts on that. Mm -hmm, We could... mm -hmm. We could write a book on how to two one your draft. I feel like that's right down our alley. Any other cards that feel like they're in a similar space for you? Where you're like, I'm not sure if this is good enough, but sometimes it comes together. And is it worth the slot?
0: So there are definitely a couple cards in the Irregular Cube, in that rare list, that I, I think that I went a little bit too heavy and, and did add some things that are just straight-up traps. Just cards that don't really function. Part of what I was interested in sort of experimenting with in that rare list was you know some some people like to put a little joke in their cube like ah here's here's crowstorm i'm putting it in my cube and or not crowstorm storm crow and ah it's so funny when you open it and it's like oh god here's storm crow i've never seen this happen uh, before this, i've seen this happen some people like, it's like a like, little it's, joke it's very funny but uh, when it is again costing you a slot in the environment it's that's a real cost and so it's it's only going to be funny the first time right
1: i did not realize you had intentionally put like joke cards in a
0: little bit just a the couple cube. little jokes so i did include for example seed time which is just. I mean, talk about cube being the environment where you get to play cards that don't function anywhere else. I can't play seed. That's, maybe not, a, I that's could... not a
1: meme. That's just a great cyborg card. It
0: Okay, so should I leave it in there? Does that actually, <laughs> maybe take a better example, channel. I think channel is like a card that looks really exciting. It's it's iconic. There's not really that's enough kind to of do trap. with it here. So it's like, that's, that's kind of a, a trap. real trap. Uh, how about Parhelion 2? Can you cast an eight mana super vehicle in this environment?
1: How much thought was put into Parhelion 2? Is it like, are there ways to cheat it into play? No, the, the thought was
0: some people will like this.
1: <laughs> I don't know who. That's a that's a new deck now in uh, in modern apparently. It's yeah, a, yeah. a Parhelion deck with that weird thing that really the vehicle. Yeah, that's the one. Anyway, uh, I you know I think it's fine to have it in the rare module because, like you said, it's one out of the 360 cards we opened, and like we all ignored it. And fine, whatever. I think the question you have to ask yourself, which is similar to the question Jay Selzo has to ask themselves, is how often does it have to work for it to be worth it? And for you, maybe the answer on Parhelion 2 is like Once. 5% of the time. <laughs> yeah. If, it, if 1 in 20 times Parhelion 2 is open, somebody trashes people with Parhelion 2, then it is worth it. Sea time for me, I love that card. I think that's great. Now, okay, great. It is a sorcery, right? So they have to cast a blue on your turn. No, it's, it's turn. an
0: instant, but you can only do it on your turn.
1: Okay, so it's an instant, but you have to do it on your own turn. I think it's still worth it. Sea time, for those who don't know, is a uh, green time walk that you can only cast if your opponent has cast a blue spell this turn. And it's two mana. It's literally time walk. Uh, so, it's I think a very cool card. It's got some great Rebecca Gway art, and uh, that's
0: that's the real compelling part about that card.
1: We we didn't talk about it explicitly, and I think at some point there's a, a bigger topic here. But there is this like space in your cube. I think of as this like flexible zone where there's it's a like
0: special space in every cube. There's a special space in every cube, <laughs> which is just for for you
1: for you. Well, to- but we talked about how you're drafting way more cards than you're using, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how are you going to utilize those cards that your drafters are not using? And I think a lot of cube designers make the very understandable mistake of just including as many cards as they can that are all relatively linear or relatively flexible or whatever. And then the result is that most players have a sideboard full of cards that are in their colors, kind of on strategy, but just the worst cards. They just cut the worst cards from their colors. They get to the end of the draft, they go, I need five cuts. I have five more cards on strategy and on color than I need here. And if that's what your extra space is, then you're really missing a big opportunity, right? Because what that could be is more fixing lands, more narrow cards that 5% of the time work and the rest of the time don't work, and that's okay. They can be sideboard cards, like seed time, you know? (laughs) Like, it it sounds silly because, you know, maybe like... I don't know, how many drafts do you take a seed time and then never play a blue opponent? Like, that could entirely happen. Or never play an opponent with blue instants. You play, like, a blue opponent that's playing a mid-range deck or something. Or, like, a tap-out control deck. That's going to happen sometimes. But if that card was just going to be the worst red creature that no one's ever going to play because they already took all the other better red creatures and they weren't going to play it anyway, then it's much better to be a seed time because... That will do something different sometimes, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, like we talk about a lot, the the long tail of the experiences that you get in a, in a cube is really where a lot of the exciting stuff is.
1: I feel like there's a feeling people have when they look at their cube where they're like, well, this is a good, this is like a, you know, a C, this is a solid value creature. It goes in every deck. They're like, they feel like they're being responsible and like using their cube slots wisely. And it's like, not necessarily. If nobody ever wants to play that card and it's always their 25th, 26th, 27th card, then just make it a way more ridiculous card that someone will look at and say, you should cut this card. You're
0: buying Microsoft for playing it safe. No one's going to fire you for buying Microsoft if... What's the whole quote?
1: I don't even know this quote. Oh,
0: man. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Take, I, I, you're taking the safe route. You're doing something that no one can criticize because it's not there's nothing objectionable about just doing the normal right. thing and playing the and safe it, cards. it doesn't
1: stand out, right? When you look at it in your cube, it's like, "Oh yeah, here's a bunch of burn spells and this one's sure the, the worst one here, but this burn spell's it's fine, it's just whatever." You don't they don't stick out to you unless they're like way worse. But it doesn't matter how much worse they are. It just matters that they are not the top 23, 24, 25 cards that person is building their deck with. And I found at least for the first couple years of my cube, there were tons of cards that were always in that trailing section there. And so I made the choice to replace them largely with more fixing lands and somewhat with more narrow cards that people sometimes look at my cube and say, why is this card still here? And I'm like, well, sometimes it works. And to me, that's better than having another card that would just be riding sideboards, but not drawing attention to itself.
0: Can I talk you into putting seed time in your cube? No. Okay.
1: (laughs) I don't think so. Could you talk me into putting seed time in the degenerate micro cube where half the cards are blue? maybe think about it there's much fewer slots there but maybe you could do it actually the real problem with that time walk totally fair there actually yeah it's not even even that worth it it's fine time walks best use case in that cube is uh you tinker out your blight steel then you time walk so you don't give them time to have Uh sorcery speed interaction for it that's the best time walk it's it's just an expedite pretty much yes it could just basically be expedite I hope this is okay with you, Jay Celzo. I didn't ask you if I could uh, talk about your post on the podcast, but you posted it on the public for the internet to consume, and that's how all podcasts are made, <laughs> by, <laughs> by, re- by reading things on the internet out loud to, uh, to, the, to the listeners. So I imagine this episode will make its way back to Jay Celzo. and uh, if it does, I'm curious to know where you end up landing on Temeshi. As far as I'm concerned, it sounds cool. sounds like you had a lot of fun with it. Don't overthink it, man. Pop down. And if it's
0: not making it in that, you know, relative power level situation, just build a second cube with that and all the other cards that you want to put around it to make it great.
1: This is the way. This and also, way. it is dangerous. As someone that is ordering my, like, fourth Battlebox indoor cube, is dangerous. <laughs> all right, Anthony, the time has come. Uh-oh. It's time for the kitchen tier list. And we talked about format ahead of time. So I have prepared an S tier, an A-tier, A tier, a B tier, a C tier, and a D tier. I have five tiers here of kitchen stuff. My C tier is the largest, which I think is appropriate. That's the grade most people should get. Everyone should get a C unless you've been really exceptional. I know we have grade inflation in this country. That's uh-huh. not how it works. But I think C is where most things should be. And that's where most of my things are. Would you like to go first or second? I'll go second. We should go from the top down. I think it's the traditional way to read okay. a tier list. So my S tier. So wait, the
0: specific prompt, though, to be clear, is most important kitchen tools.
1: Yes. Okay. I, I have given myself helpful descriptions of these tiers as I think about it. Okay. Which I will say out loud. My S tier is what I consider essential kitchen goods and also the quality is really important. And the like better way to think of these things is this is the stuff that if I'm going to an Airbnb for like a long weekend away and cooking is part of my plan, I will always bring these things because I do not trust the house, no matter how well stocked, to have these things of a reasonable quality. I have four things in my S tier. Okay. It is a sharp knife, specifically a vegetable cleaver. This is my knife of choice. So it is a cleaver looking knife, big rectangular blade. But unlike a meat cleaver, it is not a really thick blade. It is quite thin. It is for slicing vegetables. I've used one of these for years. And frankly, I'm just used to it. But I do really like that the big flat blade allows you to do things like mash garlic, mash spices, and also pick up a bunch of stuff, scoop it up, and throw it in a pan. That is my knife of choice. My second thing in S tier, a large wooden cutting board. I think it is a, a damn shame how small people's cutting boards are. It Oof, makes cooking that's... so much worse. For, like going home to my mother's house or here's the, going to here's a vacation eight home. Here's
0: the 8-inch by 10-inch uh, cutting board. Yeah, it's, a, it's a postcard. Go
1: to town. Seriously, this is the number one upgrade I can recommend to anybody that is like interested in cooking or you want to make it a bigger part of your life. You will have so much more fun cooking if you have a comically oversized cutting board, at least comically oversized for what you're probably thinking. Mine, I think- You get used to it very quickly. Mine, I think in my house is like 28 by 22 or something. It's, I had a 24 by 24 one, and this one was longer than it, but also narrower than it. It's like probably the same, it's probably four square feet in surface area, but it is rectangular, not square. And that's like the smallest cutting board I'm comfortable using. Big cutting board is so important. I'm a devotee of cast iron pans, the third item in my S tier. If I only had to, at cast iron cans, pans to cook on for the rest of my entire life, I would not miss other pans that much. That is a spoiler for where other pans land on this tier list. And then my last item barely made it into S tier. I almost put it in A tier, but I had to put it up there. And that's just tongs. And again, very specific kinds of tongs. I feel very strongly that tongs should not have a little stupid latch that you can lock them closed. The latch is the worst. It's and it the pinches worst. You. It pinches you. It's just going to break. It's just going to stop working. The only tongs you should have are the tongs that are a single piece of bent aluminum, and then the handle is dipped in a rubberization, like a rubberized material. So you got a rubberized handle. There's nothing to break on them, there's nothing to ever fail on them. They last forever. And Tongs are for me, my hands that can get hot, right? I use them for picking up anything out of pans, for flipping stuff, rotating stuff. And again, because of the versatility of tongs, which I deem as completely essential, the other items that you might use instead of tongs are incredibly low on my tier list because I do not care about them. Thus is my S tier, Anthony. What is your S tier?
0: So mine's similar, but a little bit bigger, and I broke all the rules and I didn't do it right, and it's vague. Go. Okay. So. Number one, also, yes, a knife. I'm with you. I like exactly the same style of knife. It's great for all the reasons you said. It's the most versatile. If I could only have one, that's the one I'm going to have. I want to add a caveat that along with the knife are two really important things a workflow for sharpening it, whether that means sure. you're taking it to someone to get it sharpened or you're doing it at home. It doesn't matter. Knives are like puppies, it's like it's a whole project. You can't just say, like, oh, I got the knife and now it's done. Or maybe a better metaphor for it's like, People like to buy a knife and say, oh, I'm going to go buy a sharp one. And that's a sign of quality. Buying a sharp really knife works, yeah. is like buying beer because it's cold
1: that you're going to drink next week. Buying a clean car. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, so, yeah, have a plan to sharpen it and also uh, store it. Like, I, to me, the the maybe worse than than the tiny postage stamp cutting board is seeing a drawer full of knives that are just loosely thrown in there. It's like, as soon as that you put that knife in there, it's ruined.
1: That is why I bring a knife to every airbnb or vacation home or whatever because their knives are always the dullest bluntest things and a dull knife is like next to useless it's like you might as well be just chopping that onion with your bare hands
0: <laughs> which actually kenji uh awesome food guy will recommend just like yeah we uh, we underrate smashing with our hands yeah no i think technique. smashing like
1: i think smashing is pretty fine i do want to say here too i said to you that for me quality matters in this category none of these things are expensive you can get a perfectly serviceable, fantastic knife for not that much money. I also have a very, yeah. very nice knife that was very expensive because I you know, I have a little bit... I, I can afford it and I would like to cook, but you absolutely do not need it. My expensive knife is not in the S tier. Right. For me, it's just a knife that...
0: The maintenance and storage are so much, more, so much important more important than the quality.
1: And like large wood cutting board, you can buy a fancy one from a fancy named company if you want, or you can just get a cheap one from a no-name company. They're pretty much the same. Cast iron pans are dirt cheap, uh, new or used. They're very, very affordable. Now there's like the designer cast iron pan companies, which they're basically like squarely marketing to me. And I'm like, sorry, I already have all my grandmother's old cast iron pans. I got for free and like refinished and reseasoned myself. And they're just better. I understand why those exist. And if you got a little extra scratch and you want the fancy pan, go for it. They look nice. Are they actually that much better as pans? No, they're probably 2% better as pans for costing, 500% as much but if you want to do it you can go for it and those tongs are I don't think you can even get a nice version of those tongs a nice in air quotes version a expensive version they're so cheap no matter how you get them
0: I'm with you on the cutting board definitely I want to get the biggest cutting board I can that can fit in my sink reasonably is basically where I'm at yep I specifically really really love wooden ingrained cutting boards it's a little bit more maintenance potentially than plastic cutting boards but just that the feel of it i mean i i want to these are the essentials to make cooking a joy for me is what i will say and an end grain cutting board really really makes cooking a joy
1: End grain is much better our current one is not end grain and i wish we would gotten an end grain one because it does really make a difference
0: the other factor to consider there is they are heavier so that that's a reason why maybe a a huge block isn't what you want to do did you have a pot on
1: your list not an S tier, no. Wow.
0: All right. So I would say if I can... Will only I have... make
1: pasta in a cast iron pan if I have to? Yes.
0: <laughs> so I would say that my baseline, if, if I could literally only have like the minimal things, I think it's three and a half quart uh, lodge cast iron pot is, is a great baseline because in a pinch you can definitely fry in it, you can saute in it, but you can also use it like a pot and make anything else. So that's sort of my baseline, what I'd go for.
1: That's your S tier.
0: That's my S tier. I mean, obviously. That wasn't longer.
1: That was the same length.
0: Oh, no. Sorry. That's my S tier pot.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> my, my bad. So, okay. All right. Keep so where, you, going where you
0: said tongs, I just wrote down tools. That basically means tongs. All tools? Tongs and like a spoon. It's like, I mean, it's vague. It's like, you're going to want some tongs. You're going to want some mixed spoons. You're going to want a whisk. Maybe. I mean, whisk we can put down. I okay, literally have whisk put, have down whisk. here below. Right. Right.
1: So it let's say low. tongs
0: and a spoon. How about that?
1: So I, I guess my question is: To me, S tier is like not only is it essential. I mean, a lot of these things are essential for cur- cooking. Like, you need a pot. You do need a pot. You do need a pot. My point is that does the pot have to be like have specific properties and be like a nice pot? No, I'll boil water in anything. Like I've, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to the Airbnb. <laughs> i like see you try. I'll go to the Airbnb. I'll bring my nice cast iron pan. I will not bring a pot because whatever pot they have will be fine. That will do. That will serve me just fine. I have that in in a lower tier. Okay. But we can. We, our tiers can also be based on different subjective material. That's the I'm doing point. Doing my best.
0: Next up, I got bowls. <laughs> okay, you're gonna need some bowls. I I would say if you're gonna default, if you're gonna have fewer, make it big. Make it stainless steel. Have a nice bowl. I like to go overboard. Let's, I'm gonna add some more bowls down here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, towels. Towels are super important to a kitchen. I can't cook without towels. I have a lot of them. I have a big hamper for the towels. And as soon as the towel gets a little bit dirty, it goes right in the hamper. I use them heavily. Vegetable peeler. This was on the cusp. I wasn't sure, but I think that a vegetable peeler is a pretty important tool to have. There's a lot. I was thinking, you know, everything that I can do with a vegetable peeler, I could do with a knife, but I don't want to peel a bunch of potatoes with a a giant cleaver. So I'm going to put vegetable peeler barely in here. Uh, And last thing also just barely is a colander, some kind of straining device. That's it. That's, that's my that's my essential that's your kit. All
1: right, I'll go on to A tier. I also have four things in my A tier, which is largely inclusive of everything that you just mentioned. This is stuff that I consider very important. I think the quality does matter, but it doesn't matter that much. It's not like totally totally essential. Uh so here I have a stainless steel saucepan, like, you know, a, just a pan for, or a pot for uh for boiling water and stuff. Carbon steel wok I have here. Uh, this depends on the kind of cooking you're doing, obviously, but we do a lot of wok cooking, and so I like having a wok. It does cook things differently than other pans, and so it is kind of worth having. And then I have an oven-safe Dutch oven here as well, uh, which... Ooh, that's a good one. Specifically with a lid, if you have a cast iron pan with a lid, then you can do a lot of the things you can do in that Dutch oven. That's what I have in my A tier, which is basically like the other cooking implements... Sometimes if I'm going to an Airbnb and I know I'm cooking a specific thing, I'll bring one of these if I know that thing is required. Like I will bring a wok if I'm doing some stir frying or I'll bring a Dutch oven if I know I'm going to do some roasting.
0: Yeah, this is the annoying thing about this challenge that you've put to me is that it totally depends on what you're cooking.
1: Well, it's it's entirely subjective. This is the point, Anthony. What's in your A tier?
0: All right. My next tier, number one, paring knife. If I'm going to get a second knife, it's going to be a small knife because the big cleaver does the big stuff. Measuring tools. These, I rate pretty highly. You can definitely cook a great meal without measuring tools. But uh, for me, a thermometer scale, measuring cups and spoons, I, I'm getting more and more dependent on them. I think that they are important, especially the scale and thermometer.
1: I forgot about thermometer. I'm retroactively putting that in my A tier as well. Excellent. It's important. And I think the quality does matter on the quality thermometer. Quality
0: really does matter It's important
1: to get like... And you know, the Thermopen is expensive. We're both Thermapen owners. Mm-hmm. And I can say that it is, a, it is worth the cost. It is and an extremely good thermometer. The
0: Thermopen is so good. It's one of those design successes where it looks and feels really, really simple, but there's a ton of work that went into it. You know, just the, yep. the, the fact that it turns on just when you open it. The, the fact that the the, rotates it, it the rotates based and on, it turns yep. on the light just when it needs. It's like it does one interaction, but it handles a bunch of edge cases you're not thinking about. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing with like measuring tools is you're just not going to use them if they're not easy to use and accessible. So yep. that's a place that I think quality really does matter. Scissors. I think scissors are pretty good to have. Get some good chick chicken scissors, kitchen scissors, sheet pans, and I think the next pots that I would add would probably be a stainless steel skillet. Or just more gun started skillet Or skills. straight up stainless <sighs> Great steel. Great question. I mean the thing is it's it's I really like having a variety, uh, because good things are good for different things, or different mm-hmm. things are different things. Uh but uh <laughs> so uh, what would my next one actually be? I would say just a plain stainless steel skillet would be the next thing to add.
1: I guess another way to think of these tiers is like if your entire house burned down and you were like rebuilding everything from scratch, like what are the things you would get first? Where it's like, oh, I got, I got to have a new kitchen. Like, what right. am I going to get? Well,
0: this you is... don't need to rebuy the cast iron because that's surviving that's the fire. That's <laughs>
1: surviving the fire. You're right. That's, it's actually super well seasoned yeah. now.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably not. All right. Probably, probably ruined this. year Yeah. It's tr- it's, it's
1: ruined, but you can fix it. That's you the thing. You can fix it. All right. On to my B tier. These are things I consider to be important. You know, I would purchase them for a new kitchen, but the quality is not that key. These are things I would never bring to an airbnb ever or whatever i would just use whatever ones over there i expect them to be there uh the first is varied size stainless steel mixing bowls you mentioned this those are important I they're fine I, I i will also mix things in any kind of bowl they're not that important to me it's whatever i guess
0: if you're counting like if you already have your serveware that includes some bowls that can do double duty sure
1: we, this we're not in a vacuum we're we're in the kitchen so it's <laughs> like how important is you have this specific thing like no there's other stuff around you can make you can mix stuff in the thing if you have to vegetable peeler i agree is here this is one of the tasks that is most annoying to do with a knife, even though you could actually do it with a knife. And the peeler is uniquely good at that job. I have a Pyrex measuring cup here, specifically mm-hmm. the like Pyrex pitcher-style measuring cup, which I think is but one of my only measuring devices that makes it this high on the tier list. I'll get to that later when we get down lower on. Then, Anthony, I have pot holders, I have dish towels, I have baking sheets, and I have an extra-large stock pot. I like having a very, very, very large stock pot for doing very very large things, and that is my B tier. That sums up all the things that I would consider to be like important in a kitchen. Give us your B tier, then Anthony. All right, my B tier. What's B-tier. your B tier? Grater.
0: I think a grater is nice to have. Again, it's like you can do a lot of stuff with a knife, but a grater is good to have. Uh, sheet pans. I'm going to throw in a second cutting board because one cutting board's not enough. Uh, I actually really like having, I have a cute in addition to my big wooden end grain cutting board, I have one that's exactly the same size that is plastic. And I actually really love it a lot more than any other plastic cutting board I've used because it's heavy enough. It doesn't slide around. uh, It's reversible and has a moat in one side. Strongly recommend this cutting board. It's also a little bit lighter, which is nice for regular use. Bench scraper. This is one of my favorite little tools that I use all the time in the kitchen, uh, just scooping stuff up off the cutting board into a pan. I forgot that one too. Also cutting dough and stuff like that. Let's get some more bowls. I love little prep bowls uh, because I'm a maniac with for my mise en place and I like putting it in little bowls.
1: <laughs> See, I, I like the prep bowls too. They're in my C tier, which will get two in a second. <laughs> But I don't like the mise en place thing. I don't measure everything ahead of time, but I just like they're just so convenient to have a little tiny bowl it's, around. It's funny. Just especially it's amazing how much it comes up.
0: If you have it just like on the counter available, use them, just you're just, them just constantly. like always reaching for a little bowl to yeah. store stuff in. Mesh strainers. So we got a colander. If we're going to get some more strainers, uh, that is great to have. I'm going to put this pretty high up uh, sous vide circulator. I use this all the time. I love it. Uh, I think this is a great tool to have. That is definitely one of the first things I would add to my new kitchen after my house burns down.
1: We're still in B tier here. All right. Big stock pot.
0: Mortar and pestle. What's the next knife I want to add? Hmm. I want to go with a chef's knife. Uh, the cleaver is great. I also really like using a chef's knife. Uh, so they're a little bit interchangeable. But that's going to be my next one. A walk in the Dutch oven.
1: All right. Pretty good B tier. Okay. On to C tier then. Let's do it. C- my C tier is nice to have Not essential, but I'd miss them if they were gone, and I would eventually replace them. All right. This is where a lot of the more specialized stuff goes, and I think some of the stuff here is going to cast the other previous things into a different light. I think we'll actually have some more discussions about how low some of these things are, rather than how high some of these things are. This is a pretty long list. I'm going to kind of speed run it. You just pay attention to anything you want to talk about. Okay. Pairing knife and bread knife. You can do everything with the cleaver. I... only had a cleaver for so long and i did tiny little cuts i cut up little tiny garlic you can do everything with a cleaver so these things are pretty low priority for me you can compare with the two bread knife paring knife small prep bowls as talked about roasting pans you can use the cast iron cookware instead of the roasting pans you don't need a roasting pan kitchen shears i have down here scale i have down here measuring spoons and classic measuring cups so not the pyrex but like actual metal or whatever measuring cups which i actually very rarely use because i have access to the pyrex rubber spatulas, microplanes or graters, whisks, ladles, drying and or cooling racks, rolling pins, ice cream scoop, butcher string, dedicated steamer, string, dedicated steamer or steamer basket, a mandolin, a food processor, a blender, a sous vide circulator, and a second cutting board. This is all the stuff where it's like, once you got all this stuff, you got like a fully stocked kitchen. You've, mm-hmm. you've got it all. Congratulations. You did it. You got a kitchen. What's in your C tier?
0: All right. My C, this is actually my last tier below uh, above F tier. Yeah. Uh, same okay, here. Cool, cool, this cool. Is the, this
1: is the second to last tier.
0: So my first thing that I do want to talk about here because it's one of my favorite ki- kitchen implements is a poultry knife, a Japanese style poultry knife that I adore using. It's like one of my favorite but things you put in put my it in kitchen. did But I can't say it is essential. It's just really well shaped uh, and very rigid to be able to take apart small bones and stuff. So. and
1: importantly, in your kitchen, you take apart a lot of chickens. i
0: I tend to use it uh, every other week at least I tend to be one. lazy
1: and just buy chicken that's already been taken apart for me, so I have no need for such a knife. It's
0: a delight to use. You should borrow it sometime and break down a chicken. Maybe it'll change your mind. I'm not saying everybody needs this, but if you want if you want something nice. vegetarians don't need it. <laughs> don't. Don't need it. Bar mat. This is another another little kitchen thing that I really love. Buy one of these. Yours is so nice. I mean, it's just like a silicon cheap thing. So I got turned on to this by Dave Arnold of Cooking Issues, who specifically called it out as a, a thing you need if you're going to be making and preparing clear ice, which is a thing I would also recommend uh, having a nice space to uh, to prepare your ice. It's also just great to have all the time. I have it right in front of my coffee maker, and uh, I'll make coffee there in the morning, and also. Uh, Next to the dishwasher, I can put a not not really hot pan, but a pretty hot pan on it. So it's good to have some extra extra space for hot things. It just is a really nice surface to have in the kitchen. Then we got a mallet, again great for ice, but also for founding <laughs> <browning> chicken <laughs> breasts and things. Great for uh, citrus, ice. citrus reamer, funnels, strainers, uh, salad spinner, cooking chopsticks, a vacuum sealer, immersion blender, blender, stand mixer, pasta roller. And I added string and steamer that you mentioned, and I forgot.
1: Okay, so this is just kind of like, we can both agree this is all the middle tier stuff. Yeah. Do you find it to be a disgusting injustice that I have a paring knife and bread knife down this low?
0: No, I actually, I, I only recently got a bread knife
1: uh, for fries. For fries? For ice. For ice. Okay, yep. yes, sure, <laughs> yeah. that makes sense. It's, it's an ice knife at that point. It's, it's an not ice knife. Even, it's not even a I've bread knife anymore. for bread, correct. I also have shears low down too. You can just, you can use a knife, it's fine. Whisk. Use a use a fork. It's fine. Forks don't it at all. So ladles, I think, are
0: more important than whisks. Actually,
1: ladles are weird because I, I don't think they're that ladles important. But I actually weird. find myself using our ladles way more often than <laughs> I would expect. It's just the right size for a lot of things. Like for example, uh, our what are our ladles is the perfect size for filling our waffle maker. And it's like, yeah, everyone else uses measuring cups. I don't know why Like, I used to measuring a cup for years and it's so small. It falls down into the batter. It gets all sticky. No, you need a ladle, yeah. a big ladle to, to fill your waffle maker. Pancakes. It just has, it just tends to be a good size for more stuff than you would expect. But ultimately, it's just a big, big spoon. It's fine. I don't think it's that important.
0: It's more than a big spoon.
1: All right. onto our F tier. The trash. These are things I actively dislike, but
0: how many things are have in, in my your, kitchen in your F tier? oh, I only have one thing and it's not in my kitchen because it's an F. <laughs> well, you
1: you are a bit unique in that you bought a house last year and okay. to live alone. You have luxury to just only have the things you really want. <laughs> and I think I've been very selective about stuff. I just have stuff. So these are
0: things your wife has bought that you are upset with. I'm not going
1: to lie. Some of it is stuff that she values more than me. Some of it is also just stuff that we just have and probably should get rid of, but it just feels weird. To get, I'm bad at getting rid of stuff is okay. what it comes down to. Any other knives? We have so many knives we never use. You need... Vegetable cleaver, paring knife, bread knife, end of knives. That's it.
0: Nakiri Honosuke.
1: Sure. <laughs> for me, I, I, if, I, if my house burned down and I started from scratch, I would only ever buy those three knives. I would never buy another kitchen knife. It would be just that.
0: I, I enjoy my ex I, I also have some excess knives, you know, things that I had for, you know, in college and have upgraded right. since. But I kind of enjoy
1: having them. Yeah. I mean, they're around. I also hate microwaves. I would like them to go away. Wow. They take up so much you just space. You has got a microwave. I really wanted a microwave. Wow. And I understand why. It's more convenient, but it does a it's just 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 take more time to do stuff, people. And it's just it tastes better. It's better to reheat things on the oven, in the oven or in the stove. It takes a little more time, but it's better that way. And it takes up so much space. It's a whole thing. It's all in microwaves. I
0: think microwaves are maligned.
1: A lot of the things I have listed here in my F tier are also things we were gifted that I feel bad getting rid of. Mm. That's why I have some of these things too. Okay. Like specialized whisks specialized strainers specialized spatulas we have quite a few of all of these can
0: you describe a specialized spatula
1: okay so like like maybe they're not technically spatulas you know the ones that are like the really really thin long ones that are kind of like for icing or stuff mm-hmm. you know like the like a palette knife like a palette knife yeah. basically is that not a fall into the spatula category
0: yeah sure i saw somebody spatula bagel yesterday though so i think those are fine
1: yeah that may be mad <laughs> it's like oh cool it's like a knife but harder, to clean great (laughs) the dumb rice spoons that come with all the rice cookers get them out pizza stone pizza peel that's right i'm coming in hot wow i have tried so many times to make pizza with a pizza stone and pizza peel and that doesn't work it doesn't work just put it on a stupid baking sheet unless you have a brick oven don't try and do the pizza stone pizza peel thing in your house doesn't work wow this concludes my f-tier garlic press you don't need it
0: it's a bad tool. It's hard to wash. Get it out of here.
1: You didn't even put potholders in your after. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. They're just, they're just from the nulls. trolls.
0: They're just, they just <laughs> look, if you like potholders, enjoy potholders. I just don't see a re it's like, there's the And towel. if you like
1: fiction, enjoy all your little made up stories um, that didn't will. even happen. I will.
0: And I'll <laughs> enjoy my, my, my transformer towels that just turn into a hot pad at will. It's, you know, they're,
1: they're there. They're clean. They're convenient. On David Rees' guest appearance on The Doughboys this past week. It was a very good episode. It was a good episode. I, I appreciate that they gave this awful, awful ghost kitchen restaurant chain less than one fork combined. Yep. I, I think they finally gave Great a, a fair a fair score out. And also, he explicitly talked about how he doesn't like fiction, because it's all just little made-up stories. Mm-hmm. Anyway, solidarity, David Rees. <laughs> David Rees.
0: If you ever want to talk about Magic the Gathering.
1: I bet he... He's played. Before. He's dabbled. He has to play. He's played. got to. There's no way. Well, he also was kind of into like the punk scene. He might be too cool. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Hmm. Thus concludes this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Anthony, I think we should post our kitchen tier list in the show notes. Will you agree to this? I will agree to this. Okay, great. Our kitchen tier list will be in the show notes. I know it's what everyone tuned in for. And uh, Jay Selzor, I hope, uh, I hope our conversation maybe shed some light onto why Tameshi is cool. And you should keep playing it until you have a good reason not to. And people should just test more cards in their cube because, as we said, I think it's so easy to get caught in a little rut where you think you know what you want. You just got to try more stuff. Yeah, try a weird whisk or a a, a spatula that looks confusing. Thanks for tuning in. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by me giving Anthony homework in advance saying, hey, you got to make a kitchen tier list. And he like works on it for like a month. And then we finally talk about it. You did a great job. This is a great tier list.
0: I just realized I forgot my fondue pot.
1: That's not really a kitchen thing. It's a serving thing. Oh, you're right. <sighs> okay, we're safe. Yeah, I didn't put any like decorative bowls and like serving ware in this Large
0: list. novelty ice cubes.
1: That's not, that melts. And it's gone.
0: Uh, I mean, ice cube trays, <laughs> which I don't actually use for ice. I use those for chicken stock. It's it's all very clear.
1: For ice, you use the. For ice, I have my box own my own made. process. I think you could honestly derive a good tier list in your kitchen just from looking at exactly where everything was. Literally, placed.
0: like looking. I'm in the basement right now, Look. and
1: here are the f the pie pans. <laughs> there's there's, <laughs> the, there's the D tier right there. The stuff that you haven't ever uh, pulled out since you got back. Your walk lid. How often do you use a walk lid? Not I since I moved. I don't ever use a walk lid. I don't have one. That's why I wouldn't use it. We'll be